Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. From time to time, like most of the time you're awake and at least some of the time you're asleep, you may think to yourself, I wonder what it would be like to not have any concerns, no worries, no problems. And let me tell you, it is fantastic. That's essentially what I would say if that applied to me. However, and this may come as somewhat of a shock, I too have problems, concerns, and worries in my life. I know! I'm surprised as you to discover that. The Bible is clear. We're not to fear. We're not to worry about tomorrow. We're told through counselors, psychiatrists, self-help gurus, and the like that worry is pointless and psychologically damaging. We're told by medical professionals that worry can affect your physical well-being. And we're told by social media, mainstream media, celebrities, politicians, and their ilk that, uh, fire! Everything is on fire! And it's all the other guy's fault and we're all dead! Find out why. Story tonight on the Evening News. The very podcast you're listening to right now, in fact, is a constant reminder of so many of the worries that exist in the world today. The hopefully, by the end, leaving you with more of a sense of hope and calm rather than dread and foreboding, your results may vary. On today's episode, first, we're going to investigate a very ancient way of removing worry. No, not Zen or meditation. Not even Tai Chi or green tea. No, no, no. Marxism. Then we'll dive headfirst into the shallow end that constitutes my knowledge of prophetic worry. And of course, I'm clearly worried about you listening to my goals update after the bumper. So hang up your better red than dead banner. You can put it right next to your portrait of Chairman Biden and strap on your helmet. This may be a rough one. And I guess, despite my better judgment, mustering all the courage I can find, which isn't much. Whoa, what was that? It's probably, probably just the wind. No, that wasn't the wind at all. Here we go. It seems like all I do is talk, but nobody seems to listen. I mean, what is the point of me doing this exactly? I feel like a parent for crying out loud. On July 31st, 2023, I wrapped up over 115,000 words in 11 and a half hours of podcast time over the course of 41 episodes in just over a year, all geared at explaining to all of America plus or minus about 335.5 million people, the founding documents that have granted us the freedom we enjoy, the prosperity we have attained, the global superpower status we've claimed, which brings with it the ability for anyone to break out of their socioeconomic status, their caste, if you will, to be practically anything they want to be, do just about anything they want to do. We've policed the world, for better or for worse. We've fed the world. We've pulled what, millions out of poverty, and shown the world what true freedom and liberty looks like. We've done this so successfully that citizens of other countries all around the world have begged us not to lose our way, to not lose our soul, because if the United States collapses, the toll on the global stage would be devastating for a long, long time. And then, then, I find on bizpackreview.com headline... Over one-third of Dems believe Americans have too much freedom. <laughs> uh, 
now before we jump to conclusions, maybe maybe they're saying that people shouldn't have the freedom to murder the unborn or to help someone kill themselves. Maybe they're saying that people having the freedom to use and abuse various drugs to the harm of themselves or others is, is going too far. Maybe they feel that just allowing people the freedom to loot and riot is, is going too far, so we should rein that one in. Maybe they're talking about the basic idea that if the abuse of my freedoms infringe on your freedoms, causing you harm, that might be too much freedom, and we need to get back to some moral, ethical rule of law. That's got to be what they're talking about, <laughs> right? Can I just say, yep, that's what they're talking about, and then give you no proof and no quotes, no links, and just close this out right here? Because you and I both know, if I go any further, oh, it's not going to go well. <laughs> you know I'm right. But you can't leave well enough alone, can you? <laughs> uh, here we go. Quote, the survey found that 34% of Democratic voters believe that Americans possess too much freedom compared to just 14.6% of Republican voters. Although an overwhelming portion of U.S. voters believe that freedom of speech protections are beneficial, 52% of Democratic voters believe it is important that the government be able to censor users or content on social media platforms it feels threaten national security. Uh, see what you've done? I tried. I tried to stop you. All right, well, enough playing with this article. Let's go straight to the horse's mouth, shall we? The poll was done by Real Clear Politics Research, which is part of Real Clear Media Group. Now, you may have heard of Real Clear Politics, which is a group or a site or whatever, where most of us don't really go for news. We kind of go for the compilation of a bunch of polls, all taken by various organizations, in order to get a more comprehensive picture of what America is thinking about on whatever the subject is. Real Clear Politics is generally deemed a politically neutral organization with a slight rightward lean. In comparison, 538.com, a very similar type of site, is considered to be neutral with a slight left lean. I've personally never had a real problem with either site, but like I said, I just kind of look at the compilation of polls more than anything else. So the article starts with a brief history of freedom, and specifically free speech. We'll come back to a historical perspective shortly, but let's look at the findings. Okay, let's start with something good. 90% of the respondents agreed across all demographics that the freedom of speech protected by the First Amendment is a good thing. Unfortunately, the population at large has become a flock or a, a gaggle or a murder, possibly, of mouth breathers. At polls, much like voting, is really just a game of word association at this point. Oh, well, I've heard of freedom of speech. I, yeah, I like that. Or, you know, oh, I've heard of Bob Bobbington Sunsky before. I don't know what he believes, but I know his name, so he gets my vote. I mean, it's essentially the same thing. So although 90% believe that the freedom of speech is a good thing, 90% absolutely do not believe that the freedom of speech, as protected by the First Amendment, is a good thing. The ironic, even unfortunate reality of free speech is that the only speech worth fighting to keep free is the speech that you adamantly disagree with. As an atheist, you must fight for the right of the Christian to speak freely. 
As the Christian, you must fight for the right of the Nazi or the Marxist to speak freely. The only speech that really should be regulated is threatening speech and inappropriate speech, say, in front of children. And even that must be clearly defined as that classification rests upon the peak of a mountain with a very slippery slope on either side. But speech that makes someone feel bad, that hurts someone's feelings, that, that, that is offensive to an opposing ideology, that's not speech that should be censored. Within a private residence or, or a business, rules of decorum can be mandated, but that's not the same as censoring free speech. On broadcast television, where various sizes and ages of ears may be listening, various rules can be enacted, but that's not censoring speech. When you imprison someone, when you demonetize someone, when you destroy someone because of their opinion, or their take on the facts, or even their offensiveness, that is censoring free speech. And that's what you and I, and all of us, must fight for the freedom of no matter what our opinion of that speech is. But when you see a figure like 90% agree with free speech, I'd guess there's probably, what, half of those that believe free speech means the speech that they agree with, but not the other guy's wrong speech. And the correct free speech differs, as the poll found, based on political ideology, age, gender, ethnicity, etc., etc., etc. As a broad statement, the survey found that Democrats tend to believe more than Republicans that the government should be regulating speech and the freedom thereof. Now, remember, this poll was taken this year, 2023, meaning we have a Democrat skin suit as president simply doing, poorly might I add, what his Marxist masters tell him to do. We have a Democrat-controlled Senate with a very weak, moderate Republican minority feigning resistance, while mostly being in lockstep with the basic desires of the Democrats, let's be honest here. And we have a weak Republican House with only a handful of members who actually care about true conservatism, and I'd argue the future of this country. My guess would be that if, let's say, Trump was president, with a strong socially and economically right Senate and a Freedom Caucus-led House in place, the polling would probably flip. And yes, I, I do mean flip. The Democrats would not want government to regulate speech at all. And the Republicans definitely would want it more than they do today. Fickle. Y'all, listen. Know what you believe. Know why you believe it. And unless you're given undeniable incontrovertible evidence to the contrary, do not relinquish what you believe no matter what the world looks like. Be open to other ideas, but be stubborn and opinionated and unwavering unless both legs have been wiped out from under you. Okay, so what do we actually find in this poll? All right, first, regarding speech being legal, Republicans at 74% believe it should be legal under any circumstance. I find it sad that that percentage is that low. But then only 53% of Democrats think that speech should be legal under any circumstance, while 47% say it should be legal under certain circumstances. Next, regarding the amount of freedom Americans enjoy, the headline figure is what caught our eye, right? A third, or more accurately, 34% of Democrats say we have too much freedom, while 22% of Democrats feel that we have too little 
Well, those are disturbing numbers for sure, and really that's what everyone is focusing on, but I think the more disturbing figure is that there are 14.6% of Republicans that feel we have too much freedom and only 46% that say we have too little. Really? I mean, only half of the professing Republicans grasp what's going on in this country to any extent at all? I mean, that's a little terrifying. Next, we find that 52% of Democrats believe that the government should censor social media for purposes of national security. But again, the more terrifying number is that 33% of Republicans agree with them. Now, personally, I'd have to get some more detail on this question. But really, if you're putting national secrets or, you know, like the nuclear codes on your Instagram feed, well, censoring isn't really needed. I mean, you've just committed some federal crimes uh, that are going to really cause you some problems here. Next, a saying oft attributed to Voltaire, but was actually a summation of a sentiment of Voltaire's by early 20th century author Evelyn Beatrice Hall says, quote, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. This quote was read to the poll respondents who were then asked about their level of agreement. Again, we see that 31% of Democrats will absolutely come to your defense, but only 51% of Republicans will do the same. Finally, along these same lines, 75% of Democrats believe that the government should and in fact has the responsibility to regulate or limit hateful social media posts, while Republicans are split 50-50. As I said a moment ago, this number likely flops in the breeze of whoever's in charge at the time of the asking. These are the major points that were brought out by Real Clear Politics, and in this case, I see no reason to dig deeper, as this really tells us more than enough. Incidentally, in case you were wondering, those identifying as independent generally fell, as one would probably expect, between the Democrats and Republicans on every issue. Quote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I find it interesting that creator is spelled with a capital C, as it should be, but other capitalized words are rights, life, liberty, and happiness. I mean, these were not just standard descriptors, just things, just common nouns. These were looked at as proper nouns, as beings unto themselves by the founders. Continuing on, quote, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. In other words, Government is there to ensure our liberty. And that's all. When a government infringes on our base essential liberties for any reason outside of criminality, they've overstepped their bounds. Now, if you recognize these quotes, kudos to you, they come from the Declaration of Independence. Now, the First Amendment to the Constitution further defines the core rights that we all as humans, by virtue of being citizens of the United States, have guaranteed to us. Quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. We have unquestionably the right to practice our religion, to speak freely, to publish facts or opinions, and to peaceably bring our grievances to the government. 
Now, unless you've been asleep or on a different planet, you know that the First Amendment is being eroded away at every turn. The Founding Fathers would be appalled at what we've done with what they consider to be of the utmost importance. And to paraphrase the Benjamin Franklin quote, quote, These First Amendment rights must, indeed, all hang together, or most assuredly, they shall all hang separately. You cannot fundamentally destroy one without destroying them all. If you make rules against how we practice religion, by definition you've now limited free speech and potentially the freedom to publish material. If you bind the hands of the press, freedom of speech is likewise bound. If you censor and cancel speech, well, press is no longer free, nor is religion. And if the government is the entity in control of the limitation of our freedoms, then the redress of grievances is clearly falling on deaf ears. When looking at the history of censorship, we could probably go back to God's chosen people in the Old Testament, where blasphemy against the Creator God was met with the penalty of being stoned to death. Thankfully, that isn't the penalty these days, or we'd probably run out of stones. This censorship is acceptable, though, as it's directed at our Creator, by our Creator, because of our blasphemy towards the Most High God. And blasphemy is a particularly heinous crime against God. To take Him and bring Him low, to drag His name or His character through the mud and the muck. By definition, we can't blaspheme a king or a president or an NIH director or anyone but God. Now, moving forward in history, we know that Socrates was forced to drink poison in order to protect the youth and the public from his teachings. Various martyrs have been killed for their profession of their beliefs, and actually that's still happening today. The Inquisition did its thing. The Muslims to this day monitor and censor speech using torture and murder as deterrence uh, to stepping out of line. The Catholics desperately tried to keep the Bible out of the language and out of the hands of the common man. Life under the rule of kings, emperors, and the like was full of censorship and removal of freedoms and liberties. The Russians, the Soviet Union, and again the Russians, closely control freedoms, the press, and speech. The Nazis burned books, took over churches and radio stations, and clamped down on any dissenting speech at all. Yugoslavia and Rwanda in the 90s, Cuba, North Korea, and China today all monitor, censor, and oppress their people, generally with the end result being death or disappearing. When taking this back to the Bible, as we try to do here, as we should with most every topic of discussion, we know that the Bible is a book about slavery and about freedom. We all start our lives as slaves to sin. We, we have no freedom. Sin controls our life, and we love it. We want our sin. We are used and abused by sin, by Satan and his demons, but no matter the cost, our desires to continue in our oppressed, enslaved state. That is, until God opens the eyes, regenerates the hearts of those he will. At that point, we become slaves to Christ. But as Jesus himself said, quote, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Well, how can a slave be free? Only through the sacrifice of Christ. Through Christ, we move from slaves to adopted children to children of God and co-heirs with Christ. There is no more freedom we could desire than to be a child of God. We are designed to be a free people, to live free, to work freely, to love freely, to worship freely, all in sinless perfection. Unfortunately, in our current sin-cursed world, we'll never understand true freedom. Some, and I'd assume most people, will never know true freedom. But for those who are saved, 
An increasing level of freedom is ours, culminating in eternal freedom in a sinless world, remade in perfection, living forever with our God, our Lord and Savior, and the Holy Spirit that indwelt and guided us through this life. Now, bringing us back to the present, however, as the founder stated, our freedoms at the base level are given to us by God. Man corrupts that freedom, and sinful man strives to remove those freedoms. The enslaved desires to enslave others. Now, looking at this article and listening to various current event political and news-geared podcasts that I listen to, the outrage, or at least incredulity, has been as a result of the fact that a third of Democrats say we have too much freedom. Well, Democrats, and although <laughs> I simply cannot fathom how anyone could truly be both a Democrat and a Christian these days, but I'll be kind here and say that Democrats who are overwhelmingly not Christian, not entirely, but overwhelmingly, well, they don't surprise me that they despise the freedoms of others and wish to enslave us to oppress us, to censor and cancel us. This is the unhappy, angry, selfish, evil philosophy of the unsaved. What is most concerning about this poll, as I stated at the beginning, is the number of professing Republicans that also want to limit or eliminate freedoms, who think that Americans have too many freedoms or believe that government is the best answer to monitor and regulate freedom and speech. In the past, Republicans could be fairly closely associated with Christianity. Even if the individual wasn't truly saved, they identified closely with the ideals, the ethics, the morals and principles of Christianity. Now, the founders said that we are endowed by our creator with these freedoms. Well, conversely, the loss of freedoms can be easily correlated with the loss of our interest in our creator. The farther we move away from he who endows us with true freedom the farther we move away from freedom as a whole. The ministry of Answers in Genesis is very clear that everyone in the world is one of two religions, God or not God. I've said for a few years myself now that this country has a rift that it's never seen before in its short history, whereas until recently there was a, a general agreement, more or less, on ethics, morals, and the sense of right and wrong, loosely aligned with biblical principles, well, it's easily seen that our current situation today is a split between those same types of people and those that want nothing to do with any god but themselves. This is a gulf that man can never bridge. Only God can bring the two sides together, and that's not through compromise in our positions, but through God reviving the hearts and minds of those that absolutely hate him. Revival has happened in the past, and it can happen again, we're not talking about the emotionalism of an Asbury or more recently Auburn. We're talking about a real revival, one that is convicting, full of repentance, true expressions of faith in Christ, not warm feelings and weepiness because the 37th time you sang the same chorus of the overly simplistic, vaguely Christian-esque song, you know, got you right in the feels, or because the speaker promised that everything is awesome when you're part of the Jesus team, or that if you come up front, all of your wildest dreams will come true. Revival can only be brought on by God through the Holy Spirit and will be easily distinguishable from the flash-in-the-pan dunk fests that we've seen as of late. And only through revival in the hearts and minds of man will freedom ever become important, in fact, crucial to mankind as a whole once again. And as imperfect as freedom is in a sin-cursed world, when looking at what this country has accomplished and how this country has helped people, nations, and the world as a whole because of the freedoms the founders, who were mostly Christians or 
Christian-based deists set in place, well, rather than hoping and praying for our freedoms to be restored, it may be, and I would say easily arguably is, well more worth our time to simply pray for revival in our land once again. Well, I simply just don't do these things, but God told me that I should... Nah, I'm just kidding. Although I do believe that the Holy Spirit guides us, that the the Holy Spirit is at least some part of our conscience, I don't believe that we're able to distinguish between our own thoughts and God's direct guidance, so it's best if we don't make those claims. If we're wrong, that's not a good thing, as we're putting words into God's mouth that he very potentially didn't say. You don't like it when someone does that to you, claiming to speak for God is infinitely worse. Literally. But today, we've got every prophesying lunatic, and we've got many of the mainstream evangelical wolves and wolf pups all converging on one thing, the recent surprise attack and subsequent war in Israel. And the end of days is here, and the rapture is imminent, and then we had an eclipse, and John Hagee is heavy breathing, furiously trying to get his next book written, full of prophecy fulfillments, so he can make some more money in book sales prior to the trumpet blast, of which first John will ascend, then the dead in Christ, then the rest of us. Okay, I know, that probably offended some people. Anyway... No, seriously, I want to like John Hagee. He seems like a big teddy bear kind of guy, and his unique voice just makes you kind of sink into his words, but he's just another charlatan when you come down to it. He's written book after book, given talks and speeches, delivered sermons, we'll call them, all with incorrect prophecies, of which he would have been stoned for in the Old Testament days for exactly what I said, putting words in the mouth of God that God never said. Just to give you an idea of what I want to do here, first, I'm going to do some background legwork, literally and and honestly to the best of my ability, which, as you'll see, is, uh, is a much more pitiful statement than it sounds like. Then I'm going to give you my thoughts on this war in Israel. And just a side note, I didn't do this with the Russian-Ukraine thing because mostly I don't care. Now, I know that sounds crass. I actually care about the destruction, the pointless loss of life, and the massive idiocy by both sides of our government and quite literally giving away our tax dollars and clearing our shelves of weapons and ammunition that we need in order to defend ourselves if, and I'll say when, needed. But the reality is that both countries are corrupt. This potential has been there ever since the USSR broke up. It just took the right combination of Russian leaders to desire and act on that desire to put the old band back together. And honestly, this is not our fight. We're not allies with Ukraine, not not really, and they aren't part of any treaty or anything that binds us to them, like NATO. Condemning Russia, freezing assets, sanctioning them, that's where it should have ended for us. But of course, Biden and his Marxist horde is trying to cover up hunters, and the Bidens as a family unit, corruption and money laundering, so of course they had to try to help Ukraine win, and make no mistake, we will have boots on the ground in Ukraine if we don't already, which we almost absolutely certainly do. Israel, one of our closest allies being attacked by terrorists who aren't and never have been a country with the sole intent of annihilation of the Jews, the Jews still as the chosen people of God, the Jews of which Judeo-Christianity got its start, the Jews of which Jesus was one, well, this holds much more importance from a human standpoint. And from a theological standpoint, everyone is losing their minds right now. So this, if I might say it in a very technical, theological, global, societal term, is bigger. 
Now, this may surprise some of you, but I am not an eschatological expert, or in more understandable terms, an expert on the end times. In fact, over the last, I don't know, a couple years maybe, I've actually lost expertise in the topic of revelation and related end time prophetic texts. How did I lose this, you may ask? Well, number one, I mean, leaky brain. I'm getting older. The old gray matter doesn't work as good as she used to. But number two, I've started trying to read my Bible more slowly, more carefully, with the understanding that my preconceived notions and my prior understandings may or may not be right. I just want to know what the Bible says, not what someone says that it says. Now, up to the last few years, I was solidly in the pre-mill, pre-trib, literalist camp. Not the point of the segment, but we kind of have to go through this, although be it pretty ham-fistedly. I'll do my best, like I said. There are three basic views with regard to the end times tribulation and the thousand-year reign of Christ, and then there are a few variations of a few of those as well. With regard to the tribulation, which is the seven years where the seven bowls are opened and the seven trumpets are poured out and the seven seals are blown— or something like that. These are the scary times, if you will, the time with some really weird stuff going down, the persecution of Christians, the mark of the beast, and all that jazz. The three views are pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-trib, with the event in question being the gathering of the saved to Christ. The pre-trib is probably the most common because it's the most optimistic from a human standpoint, as those of us that are saved won't have to go through all of that stuff. And Jesus will come, rapture all of his children, the earth will be judged for seven years, then we will all return with Christ again, and then he sets up his thousand-year reign, etc., etc. Mid-trib says that the saved will go through three and a half years and then be raptured and get out of the real bad stuff. And post-trib says that we're all riding these days of judgment out together. With regard to the millennium, or the thousand-year reign or rule of Christ, there are pre-mill, post-mill, and a-mill. This is also where we have a division that comes between a literal thousand years or a figurative thousand years. Generally, the view on the millennium works with the view of the tribulation. So pre-mill, pre-trib means God raptures his church, the tribulation happens, we all come back after the tribulation, Christ rules for a thousand years, then the last judgment. Post-trib, pre-mill says that we'll all ride out the tribulation together, then Christ comes back, rules for a thousand years, then the last judgment. Post-mill says that the thousand years will come prior to Christ's second coming. The tribulation prophecies were mostly, if not entirely, fulfilled around the time of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and the world will experience an awakening, a golden age at which time Christ will finally come, and then the final judgment will occur, and Bob's your uncle. The amillennialistic viewpoint is that we're in the millennium right now. It's a period of time, so a figurative thousand years. The tribulation prophecies have been fulfilled already, and at some point in the future, Christ will come back, rapture his church, enact the final judgment, etc., etc. Now, like any good Christian, I own the entire Left Behind book series, including the postscript book, if you will, about if we're living in the end times right now or not, and the three books written later, because money, that served as a prequel trilogy leading up to the original book number one in the series, Left Behind. Now, truth be told, I've never read those first three. They're just there to stop dust from collecting on that specific part of the bookshelf on which they sit. I greatly enjoyed the Left Behind series. 
Those are written from a pre-trib, pre-mill, literalist viewpoint. I can tell you that at this point, I don't believe that's the right interpretation of Revelation or the other prophetic texts. It makes for a compelling book series, and they are page-turners. Additionally, that eschatological view feels the best, but I don't think it's right anymore. The problem is, I'm not entirely sure what I think at this point. Like I said, I have some really solid Bible teachers that I listen to that fall on most, if not all, different sides, and they all make good arguments. And some of them don't fall cleanly into one of those predefined camps, which is probably where I am right now. I don't think post-mill is the right view, as I don't believe that this world will eventually have some great awakening and just get better and better, and Christ comes back at the apex of earthly godliness— to me, that makes no sense. That's not what we have ever seen. That's not human nature. It's never happened before. Mid-trib makes no sense to me, at least logically. I mean, why? Why would we do this? I, I know there are reasons that some people hold to this, but it just doesn't make logical sense to me. I don't think the Bible firmly supports pre-trib, but there are compelling arguments. I think post-trib is more likely to be right, but again, I don't know. And I'm not even sure I hold to the literalist view of Revelation anymore. To complicate matters even more, there are two overall views of how to interpret the Bible as a whole, and historically, this affects your view of eschatology. The two theologies are covenantal and dispensational. Again, let me do this briefly. Covenantal believes that the Bible is best interpreted by slicing it into the covenants made by God with man, such as the Adamic and the Abrahamic and the Mosaic and the New, which is what we're in now, as well as a few others. Some of these covenants were for a time, some are for all time. This is considered to be the view that the early church fathers followed, which tends to be associated with the Reformed or Calvinistic beliefs, which generally follows the amillennialist view of the end time. Times. Dispensationalist theology tends to break the Bible into periods of time and history. So, prior to Adam's fall, we had a period or dispensation of innocence. During the time from Moses to the cross, we had the dispensation of law. We are currently in the dispensation of grace, as well as a number of others. This view typically tends more toward the pre trib, pre mill viewpoint. These two views also have differences as to how they see Israel and the Christian church. Covenantalists tend to believe that Israel is still God's chosen people, that God has a special role for them in the end times and on into eternity based on the eternal covenants that God made. The Dispies tend to believe Israel and the church are now one, so those covenants of promise are now promised to the church. Some go so far as to say that the church is the new Israel, although not all go quite that far. But even that view gets a little gray rather than black and white. Again, when I look at some of the differences between the two, I tend to find areas I agree with in both and disagree with in both from my current understanding of the Bible as a whole. And that's not necessarily uncommon. There are many highly trusted teachers and pastors that fall somewhere in the middle of all of these things. Now, this further complicates things for me, trying to find where I fit best. So I guess after all that, the best way I can classify myself, I mean, if I had to choose, is a covenantalist, pre-post-trib, dispensationalist, figurative, literalist, pre-amillennialist. And I will die on that hill, thank you very much. Now, with all that background out there, let's get down to brass tacks, shall we? What does this have to do with Israel and the current war? 
Are we looking at the end times, eschatological prophecies being fulfilled? Is the rapture imminent? I have no idea, nor do I care. The question is, why do you care? Now, let me say this before you stand their mouth agape. I don't mean to be totally dismissive. I do care about trying to understand the Bible as best I can. I hope I've made that clear. But this is why, I, as I think I've made also clear in the past, this is why I now consider myself to be a Calvinist rather than an Armenian. I believe that the Reformed reading of Scripture is more accurate. It has a higher view of God's sovereignty and places man in his correct position, as well as literally being the views on the faith that a large percentage of the church fathers, as well as Paul, Peter, every single apostle, and every gospel writer held. It's quite literally everywhere in the Bible. That's as opposed to Arminianism, which was thought up later, coming out of the Pelagian and semi-Pelagian heresy, and really isn't well-supported biblically. Mostly, it's a few main verses or passages generally, from what I can tell now, taken out of surrounding context, and it has a lot of emotionalism. Now, I say this to illustrate the point that I'm very interested in trying to understand the Bible rightly. So, I do want to understand Revelation and how it ties to Matthew 24 and the books of Ezekiel and Daniel and many other passages to try to rightly understand what the Bible is saying. But from a human standpoint, Israel was brutally attacked by sworn biblical enemies and have declared war on these enemies. If the rapture is now or in 10,000 years, how does this change anything for me or for you? If you knew that this meant the trumpet will sound in 7.2 days from when you're hearing this right now, what would you do differently than not knowing? Or if you knew you had 7.2 years? Every generation for nearly two millennia have had reason to believe that this was it. This is the big one. Did you hear that, Elizabeth? We're coming to join you. How many of those generations have been correct so far? Yeah, our accuracy at predicting or interpreting end-time prophecy leaves something to be desired, <laughs> to say the least. Now, that said, the big question on everyone's lips right now is, are we in the end times? And yes, I can unequivocally state that we are absolutely in the end times. In fact, since Jesus ascended into heaven in full view of his apostles nearly 2,000 years ago, we've been in the end times. That point in history is what started the clock on the last days, and those are the days we've been living in ever since. One of the biggest signs that everyone keeps pointing to to say that God's return is any second now is that Israel is its own nation again. The battle right now, the sides that have been drawn, the current protests around the world, are between Palestine and Israel. But unlike Palestine, which literally isn't a thing, Israel has been an independent nation since 1948. From May 14, 1948, through this very second that you're hearing these words, those looking for Christ to appear in the clouds at any time point to Israel being a nation. That fulfills prophecy, and that's the big one. Well... I don't know if that's the big one or not, but what I can tell you is that prophecy is difficult, and it's not always a first this, then that type of thing, or a tick-the-box type of thing. This isn't a video game or a scavenger hunt where you're collecting specific objects, and when you've got another one, you can cross it off the list. Does the Bible tell us, or do you know, if the prophecy tells us that Israel will not be a nation, and then it will... And it will only happen one time, and the first and only time Israel becomes that nation after the prophecy is written, that's the fulfilled sign. See, the United States is one of Israel's largest allies, or I mean, at least we're supposed to be. 
But because of this stupid Ukraine thing and President Vegetables policies, we're in a very, very weak position economically and militarily. What if someone, say China or the whole of the Middle East, steps into this war against Israel? What if we're held at bay by, say, Russia and Israel is decimated and dispersed again? Now, could that happen? Well, of course it could happen. I don't think it's likely, at least not right now. But theoretically, what if Israel ceased to be a nation? What would your prophetic bingo card look like then? I hope you use pencil. We don't know that just because Israel is a nation right now, that it'll continue to be a nation in a week or a year or a century from now. In case you missed it, they seem to have a few enemies, and they seem to be absolutely surrounded by them, and those enemies sure seem to be focused on not having that enemy anymore, brought about by the complete genocide of that enemy. So, we say that God will protect Israel, and yes, I think, in fact, I know he will, but does that mean that God will protect them right now? Well, I mean, define protect. We all point to Nazi Germany, the Jews sure didn't seem protected then, or at least six million of them weren't, but the rest of them were. There are, what, 3,000 or more that in the last week or so have not been protected, but the majority have been. See, God will protect Israel as his chosen people, as an ethnic group, but that doesn't mean that bad things won't happen. And no, this isn't God being surprised by the sneak attack. This isn't Satan distracting the old man while he had his way. In fact, neither the Nazi-era Holocaust nor this brutal and unconscionable terrorist attack happened outside of the will of God. That makes people feel uncomfortable, but how uncomfortable do you feel if you think that an all-sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient God was asleep at the wheel, or that there are aspects of his creation that he just simply has no way to control? You should feel much more uncomfortable about something like that. Just because we understand something to be humanly, temporally evil doesn't mean that in an ultimate, eternal sense, it's evil or sinful. Recall the story of the blind man, John 9, quote, As he, and this is speaking of Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this was so that the works of God might be manifested in him. So the man was born blind so that God could be glorified through his blindness. How many years was he blind in order to culminate in this miracle to display God's glory? Was God wrong to create him as blind from birth? And make no mistake, God made that determination. Recall in Exodus 4, Moses arguing that he can't go speak to Pharaoh. He has a hard mouth and a hard tongue. Quote, And Yahweh said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? See, we tend to think that God does all the blessing stuff. Satan does all the bad stuff. But no, God makes man seeing or blind. In fact, in the book of Job, God presents for Satan's contemplation his servant Job. Satan says that Job would, of course, worship him because look how blessed he is. So God tells Satan that he can take all his blessings, but you can't touch Job, which Satan, of course, does and complies with. Then Satan appears before God again, and God presents Job yet again, saying, quote, Have you set your heart upon my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity. So you incited me against him to swallow him up in vain. 
Now, God wasn't goaded into hurting Job. That's not what incite means. This was part of God's ultimate plan. But notice that although Satan did the work and Satan wanted to do the work, God said, you incited me against him. God was the ultimate cause for Job's calamity. Satan was the actor to make it happen and is responsible for doing the evil that he wanted to do, but the evil acts were meant for an ultimate good and ultimately for God's glory. We see this with the story of Joseph. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Last illustration. In Isaiah 9, we're told very clearly of the anger that God has toward Israel for their arrogance. So far, no matter what has happened, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Judah, basically all of Israel, has turned away from God and continues to ignore him instead of relying on their own power. So God sends progressively worse calamities through attacks by various enemies, yet Israel still doesn't turn back to God. Finally, in chapter 10, we get to the brutal Assyrians. The prophecy by Isaiah from God starts with, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. He then goes on to outline how he will use the Assyrians to brutally punish Israel in its arrogance, in its willing disregard of their God. This is worth reading, so let's read it. Remember, this is God speaking. Quote, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation, speaking of Israel, and command it against the people of my fury to capture spoil and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. But it does not intend to act in this way, and it does not think in its heart in this way. This is speaking of Assyria, who doesn't realize they're being used by God to enact punishment on Israel. Rather, what is in its heart is to destroy and to cut off many nations. For it says, Are not my princes all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish, or Hamoth like Arpad, or Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images, just as I have done to Samaria and her idols? So it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, now this is speaking of when God is done punishing Israel through the use of the Assyrians, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and pomp of his eyes, which are raised high. For he, the king of Assyria, has said, by the power of my hand and by my wisdom I did this, for I have understanding. And I removed the boundaries of the peoples and plundered their treasures. And like a mighty man, I brought down their inhabitants. And my hand reached for the wealth of the peoples like a nest. And as one gathers abandoned eggs, I gathered all the earth. And there was not one that flapped its wing or opened its beak or chirped. God speaking again. Is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? is the saw to magnify itself over the one who wields it. That would be like a rod wielding those who lift it, or like a staff lifting him who is not wood. Now this clearly shows that God is the axe wielder, the sawyer, the rod bearer, and Assyria was simply the tool that God used to do the work he wanted done. Therefore the Lord, Yahweh of hosts, will send a wasting disease among his stout warriors, and under his glory a fire will be kindled like a burning flame, and the light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and his briars in a single day. Then he will bring to an end the glory of his forest and of his fruitful orchard, both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away, and the rest of the trees of the forest will be so small a number that a child could write them down. 
Now it will be in that day that the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. A destructive end is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For a complete destruction, one that is decreed, Lord Yahweh of hosts, will do in the midst of the whole land. Therefore, thus says Lord Yahweh of hosts, O my people who inhabit Zion, do not fear the Assyrian who strikes you with the rod and lifts up his staff against you. Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh of hosts, O my people who inhabit Zion, do not fear the Assyrian who strikes you with the rod and lifts up his staff against you the way Egypt did. For in a very little while my indignation against you will end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And Yahweh of hosts will waken a scourge against him like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb, and his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it up the way he did in Egypt. So it will be in that day that his burden will be removed from your shoulders, and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of fatness. A longer passage, but did you get the idea? God determined Israel needed to be judiciously punished because of their sin. God used the nation of Assyria to do this punishment. A brutal punishment. One might say a terroristic type punishment. Now the Assyrians and the king of Assyria wanted to do this. So this is where the sovereignty of God and the free will of man coexist somehow. Then when God is done punishing Israel, God will turn his anger and punish Assyria for what they just did to Israel, even though God used Assyria to punish Israel. God's sovereignty, man's free will, God's judgment, seemingly temporal evil, ultimately not evil, ultimately for God's glory. Could it be that this current attack by Hamas is modern-day judicial punishment of Israel? Israel has become very secular. Israel, by and large, still rejects Jesus as their Messiah. Could God be using Hamas as a punishment? Very possible. I don't think there's any way on this side of eternity to know that with any certainty. But I went through this so as to illustrate the fact that just because what's happening is happening, it doesn't mean that we should be listening for the clippity-clop of the horsemen riding from the heavens. People point to the passage about wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes, etc., etc. But remember, these, per the words of Jesus, are merely the beginning of birth pains. The natural disasters, the wars, the false prophets, the wolves, the famines, the martyrdoms of saints, the betrayal of brother to brother, the lawlessness, love growing cold. These are all signs that the end is coming, not that it's imminent, just reminders that the end is still coming, that Christ hasn't forgotten about a sin-cursed world that needs him to come back and set everything right. And for thousands of years, we've had famines and earthquakes and betrayals and wars and hatred, etc. God is still coming. He hasn't forgotten us. The times are uncertain and the times are frightening. I, I grant you that. But remember that everyone, including us, all throughout the Bible, are commanded to fear not. In fact, one of the only times we're legitimately told to fear is found in Matthew 10, quote, And do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus is speaking of God. Fear God. In fact, we're told that, quote, The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. We, speaking of Christians, don't need to fear Hamas. All they can do is kill the body. <laughs> Whatever. Now, the unsaved should be very scared of being killed by terrorists because after the body is killed, 
Now the second death kicks in, this one being eternal and meted out by God. So why is this happening? I don't know. And neither do you. And neither do any of these so-called prophets blaspheming God by putting alleged words in his mouth that God never spoke. Benny Hinn, over the last few weeks, has been touting the word of the Lord that came to him, saying that the Middle East was entering into a long-lasting peace. And then Hamas attacked Israel. (laughs) Whoopsie, Benny. He needs to be very thankful that the false prophets aren't stoned to death anymore. This might be the beginning of the end, a final sign. This may be a punishment and judgment on Israel. This may get the United States in an even weaker position economically and militarily and wind up being a divine punishment on us when we're overrun by enemies that we can no longer repel. This may just be another war. There are two things I know. Well, there's one thing that I think makes good logical sense and one that I know for certain. First, Satan must destroy the Jews. One of those eternally lasting covenants that God made was the Abrahamic covenant. This is an eternal covenant that at its base level means the Jews will always exist. God promises they will always exist. Satan wants God to not exist and for himself to ascend the steps to the throne, so to speak. He already tried to take it by force, and that war ended with him being cast out of heaven. He lost the war, badly. So how else can Satan remove God from his throne? Well, by causing God to not be God any longer. If God made a promise that the Jewish people will exist forever and Satan can wipe them from the face of the earth, that means that God who claims sovereignty and omnipotence is as part of his godhood, he's not strong enough to fulfill his promise. If Satan can make that happen, God ceases to be God. This at least is logical to me, and this is logically to me why the Jews are always under threat of genocide. This is why the goal of the Jewish people is to live and be a nation, and they've shown over and over that they're willing to live side by side with their enemies, and they just want to do it peacefully, and they have put up with a lot of stuff that they never should have had to. I mean, can you even imagine our country having an iron dome that just routinely intercepted missiles that were fired at us day by day? The Palestinians have the goal of Israel to cease to be. They don't want a two-state solution. They don't want a peaceful resolution. They want a final solution and a total destruction of the Jewish people. That's what I think makes good logical sense as to why we keep seeing what we're currently seeing. But what I know is that God is, in fact, sovereign. Not one atom is out of God's control. This attack wasn't a surprise. God isn't wringing his hands hoping that the House of Representatives will elect a speaker so they can authorize funding and that Biden will authorize that money and transfer you know, weapons to Israel so hopefully they can withstand this attack. No, Hamas and all those involved are absolutely responsible for their choices and actions, and God is ultimately in complete control of even what appears to be a horrific evil perpetrated on so many innocent men, women, and children. God hasn't abdicated the throne. God hasn't fallen asleep. God hasn't stepped out to use the restroom. God is God, and God is ultimately eternally doing things to bring himself glory, because who else would he glorify? So let me close with this. Quote, So when they, the apostles, had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? But he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth. And after he had said these things, 
He was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem. So let me ask you, why are you looking up? Jesus will come back at the time he's supposed to and the way he's supposed to. At some moment, God will tell him to go get his bride. Until that time, why are we staring in the sky? What will that do for us? What exactly difference will that make? We've been given the Holy Spirit. We've been given the Bible, the truth, the gospel. We've been given a few different directives. One is general sanctification. We are to study and pray and go to church, raise our kids, disciple and be discipled, grow in faith, knowledge, and godliness. The other directive is to tell others. We can go and tell. We can tell as we're going. We're to always be ready to tell whether we're going or we specifically go. Nowhere in the Bible are we told that as we believe that we think that we might possibly see some of the signs that could potentially be interpreted in a specific way that might indicate more or less that possibly Jesus might be coming back sooner rather than later, that we should stop our path of sanctification, that we should stop going, that we should stop telling, that we should stop reading, praying, meeting, providing, protecting, etc. So don't fear Hamas. Don't fear war. Don't fear economic or militaristic collapse. Fear God only. And by understanding who God is, an all-sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, just, holy, merciful, jealous, loving, and infinitely more things, know that God's easily, completely got his part handled. Our job is to look forward to that day when God sets all things right. And in the meantime, get our eyes out of the sky and keep doing our job. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful. And until next time, God bless. Okay, 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 okay. It's fine. It's all fine. Everything is fine. So we're sitting here at goal update number 34. You know, goals are funny things. (laughs) We're in the fourth quarter, just over two months away from Christmas, and some of my goals have been realized. Some, eh, not so much, eh? Soon it'll be time to start working on goals for 2024, and at the current rate of the world, I'm thinking maybe survival might be a good one to write down. But this isn't the time that I use for observations about our totally competent leadership, and this is the time I use to make observations about my competence. (laughs) Uh, I'm not sure if I'll continue the goal updates into 2024. Right now, I'm kind of leaning toward no, but we'll see. I got a couple months of pondering before I make a decision on that one. But let's get to it, shall we? Last week, it consisted of three days of corporate visitors at work, all assisting in the transition to a new computer system, SAP, for those of you familiar with it. 
Now, this is a system that incorporates maintenance, accounting, logistics, quality, and about every other aspect of manufacturing. Thankfully, we have been using SAP for years now, so it's not brand new to us, but this was moving our platform to a brand new backbone, which means over the last eight months or so, we've been exporting data, cleansing data, preparing data, training, importing data, testing, validating, on and on and on. The last week was go live when all the work that you've put in over the last eight months proves to be completely useless as everything falls apart. That's what the corporate visitors were there for, to help band-aid and paste and duct tape and wire tie things back together so we don't become a figurative mushroom cloud. Now that said, the stuff that I was in charge of, the maintenance and project side of things, that all went down with very little issue, thankfully. A couple minor things that were quickly remedied. That's nice. But with visitors come free lunches, and what was I supposed to do? Do you really expect me to not eat the free Penn Station, and then Chick-fil-A, and then Chipotle that was brought in? I mean, I would hope you wouldn't think that I would, wouldn't partake of, of those. You know, I ate some really hot sauce from Chipotle, and I don't do well with hot things. And some of the operators came in and laughed at me because the top of my head was bright red and I was sweating. It was hot. But I was not going to give in. I mean, it was fine, but it it was hot. Anyway, the smart thing to do would have been to just ignore the food, but uh, uh, I don't really claim to be smart. I chose to eat it. Now, overall, the week wasn't terrible, but not much progress was made, really none. I have a loss of 0.4 pounds, but even that, I mean, who knows if that's legit. The days since the weigh-in have been a mixed bag ever since then, and at this point, it wouldn't surprise me if I was up or down or even on the next weigh-in. The calories overall for the last few weeks have been kind of a break-even, which is what I'm seeing in my weigh-ins, but the type of food or quantity the night before I weigh in has a big effect one way or the other on the weigh-in. Now that said, working out has gone fairly well. It's a longer period of time to work out, which isn't a good thing. It's not always easy to work it in there. But for at least now, I like the routine that I'm doing better than I liked what I was doing before that. Now, it may just be the power band type things rather than big steel plates, but the lifting, for lack of a better term, has been more enjoyable. You know, getting your pump on. You know, we're, we're here to pump you up, right? You pump up the jam and so forth. So the amount I'll need to lose per week, getting back on track here, keeps ticking up as there hasn't been any loss in the last month, just to break even essentially. So now we're sitting at 1.7 pounds needed to be lost every week in order to get down to 175 by the end of the year. But I don't even know if I want to get to 175 by the end of the year now. I'm not really sure. As for the goal, it's a light green or a light red. It depends on how you look at it. And to be honest, I'm not entirely sure how to look at it right now. So I own one of those, you know, magical scales that apparently measures everything through your feet. As of now, it says I'm 17.6% fat, which seems a little hurtful to say, and 53.2% skeletal muscle, which I think is fine. According to the guidance in the app, my muscle percentage is about average for my stats. The fat percentage, however, well, for my age, height, and weight, it says that I'm less than a percent away from being in the fitness range, which they put at 17%, with 13% being the entry point into athlete. I don't think I'd ever care to be in the athlete range. I don't even know what I'd have to do to get into the athlete range, but it's kind of surprising that I'm that close to the fitness range. Looking back at my absolute best, which was back in May, I was at 15.8% body fat. So I guess I know that getting 
nice and comfortably into that fitness range is doable if I want, if I push myself again. I'm just not sure I've got it in me to try to make that push through the end of the year. I'd like to, but I don't know if I want to, if you get my meaning. Anyway, that's where we are. As for total pages, hey, success! I read 84 pages last week moving along in this large book, and the sad thing is that it's a really good book. I mean, really good. It's just a matter of time and mental energy, as this isn't just a casual read. This is it's written very well, and it's a very compelling book, but it's it's deeper stuff. But that puts my total pages at 5,145 for the year thus far, with the kind of secondary goal I'm aiming at being 5,380 pages, which is what I read in 2019, the second best year of reading I had since I started tracking it in whatever it was, 2015, 16, 17, something like that. As for Bible reading, well, not so much of a success. Only three days out of the week with a goal of five. I've got no excuse, except that I wasn't able to get it done at work like I like to do, and I didn't make it up at home. Like I said, that's not an excuse, but that's the truth. Similar to the book I'm reading, you know, I, I could just gloss my eyes over a few chapters in the Bible and say, yeah, I did my reading, and then, you know, mark it down. But that's not what I want to do. I mean, th this is usually 30 to 45 minutes of me doing my best to focus and look for things I haven't seen before and do some extra work where I find something that catches my attention. So, in all honesty, I think I'd rather just not do it at all if all I'm going to do is phone it in in order to tick a box or something. But in the three days, I actually wasn't a slug. Let's see what I highlighted in my notes. Now, for reference, I'm up through Genesis chapter 41 in my regular reading, which brings us into the story of Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers and then set as the head of the master's house, accused of making a move on the wife of his master and thrown into prison, made head of the prison, and eventually into him overseeing the food distribution during the famine. And then in my in-depth reading, I'm through Genesis chapter 5, which is all genealogy. So, what have I got for you to ponder along with me here? All right, this one's a little bit longer. Hang with me here. In Genesis 38, we get the rather uncomfortable story of Jacob's fourth oldest son, Judah, getting a wife from the Canaanites who gave him three sons. Now, the first, Ur, was given a wife by Judah, but he apparently was evil, so says the account, and he was killed by God before he had a son. So the duty to continue Ur's line with his widow then fell to the next oldest boy, Onan. Well, Onan apparently didn't mind doing the diddling of Ur's widow, but he... Let's see, want to keep this G-rated here. He covertly ensured he didn't seal the deal, uh, because he knew that any child that was produced wouldn't be technically his. It would be his now deceased elder brothers by law. So... What's done in secret is known by the Lord, and since he wouldn't fulfill his responsibility, the Bible says that God killed Onan as well. So that brings us to brother number three, Shelah, and he apparently wasn't old enough to fulfill his duty. So Tamar, the widow, went back to live with her father until Shelah was old enough. The problem is that Judah was afraid that his last son would also die. Apparently, he was terrified of Tamar, so he kept him from Tamar, even when he was old enough. Well, Tamar finally got tired of waiting, knowing that Judah was in the wrong, so she went to where she knew that Judah would go, and she played the whore. Like, literally, she pretended to be one of the prostitutes, and she tricked Judah into sleeping, etc., with her and giving her very specific items in exchange for the dirty deeds done dirt cheap. In three months, Tamar was discovered to be preggers, and Judah wanted her executed until she brought out his stuff, and then he had to admit that he was in the wrong. Tamar had twins from Judah, Perez and Zerah. So 
Why am I telling you all this? Well, Perez is in the line of David, in the line of Jesus. Why is this important? See, a lot of people will tell you that the Bible is just, eh, it's just a collection of stories and fables and tales. It's not really real. It's just, you know, it's mostly just kind of made up. Over and over again, we see that the heroes in the Bible, the lineage of the great patriarchs and the lineage of Jesus himself, is full of what we would all rightly agree to be a mess. In no way would anyone writing a fiction, or a fiction that he wanted people to believe is true, or a religion he wanted everyone to believe, would he write about this messy of a background? Who would want to follow that? No, preferably Jesus, you know, the hero of our story, would come from either a line of royalty or an impoverished lineage, but not a scandal-ridden one. The fact that we can trace the ancestors of Jesus through some really messy people attests to the historical accuracy that we find in the account that we're reading. Moving on. The story of Joseph and Potiphar's uh, very randy wife has a few interesting points in there. In chapter 39, verse 9, when the wife tries to get Joseph to do the hibbity-dibbity, he asks how he could possibly do this with all that Potiphar had entrusted him. How could he do this evil and sin against God? Not, not Potiphar, but this would be a sin against his very creator. Then, of course, she doesn't take no for an answer, and after Joseph ran out of the house, she ran and told the other men of the house about what Joseph did. Notice, though, that they didn't actually do anything. It wasn't until Potiphar got home that Joseph was thrown into prison, which is also slightly odd. So the non-reaction of the men implies to me that they knew exactly who this woman was, and they likely knew that she was lying, or at the very least, she was the instigator of the problem. Potiphar just throwing Joseph into prison rather than having him killed implies to me that Potiphar also knew uh, how she was and that she was likely the real problem, but he had to do something to save face. Now in chapter 41, we jump forward to where Joseph was now in charge of storing up in preparation for the upcoming famine. The Bible says that in the seven years of plenty, the land produced abundantly, and Joseph enforced 20% of the produced grain to be put into storage for the seven years of upcoming famine. But here's the thing. If you put away 20% for seven years, that's only 140% total, which would be 1.4 years of the grain needed to be spread over seven years. Even if the people ate half of what their normal was for seven years, that's still a requirement of 350%, not 140%. That means that whatever happened, when the Bible says that there would be seven years of abundance, that had to have meant that production in those seven years was like three, four, five times that of normal years, maybe? Now, I'm sure there's other factors in there, but we see God's abundant blessing as well as his very clear sovereign hand in literally everything through this story before enacting very hard times that was also done by God's sovereign hand for God's sovereign purposes. And then finally, in chapter 41, verses 55 to 57, we see in the LSB version of the Bible that all the earth... Now, it's the quote, quote, all the earth came to get grain from Egypt. Now, this is where context matters. Was it really all the earth? Mm. The NIV, ESV, NASB, LSB, and YLT, I'll say some form of all the earth or all the world came to Egypt. The KJV, NKJV, and HCSB, I'll say something about all countries or all nations. Well, in this case, I think that the NLT actually has the better translation saying, quote, people from all around, 
The entire world didn't come to Egypt for food. Entire countries and nations didn't come to Egypt for food. People from every country and nation in the entire world that they knew about in likely the Middle East and Africa and maybe some other surrounding areas, those people came. It was a selection of people out of the whole of the world that they knew. But the biblical author states it as everyone relying on the context to define what that means. We need to take this as a reminder that we must understand the context of the entire Bible, not just use verses or fragments of verses to push our agenda. Context matters. For God so loved the world. What does that mean? Did he love the planet? Did he love every single person on the planet? Well, that that's not possible because it's very clear that God hates the unsaved sinner who is in enmity with God. Unless you mean that God grants everyone to use air, sun, water, etc., that's true. That's God's common grace, a common type of love. But people misuse John 3.16 and many others because they refuse to understand the context of the verse and those that surround it, which define it. The Hebrew and the Greek do not transfer well over into English, so we really have to understand the intent of the author and the context of the writing. And with that, all that's left to cover, I guess, is okay, bye.